Lord, all we can ever ask from you is the truth. Uh, all we can ever... Uh, all we need to ask from you is the truth. We murmur when we don't get our way. We, we want you to agree with us at all times, even when it's not true. But once you put your righteousness in us, once, once you name us as your own, we come into relationship with you and you begin to transform us. At that point, what we really want is the truth. It's the truth about you. It's the truth about ourselves. So we're asking, God, that you would speak what is true to us. And you would give us the grace and the courage and the discipline to embrace the truth and to live out the truth rather than to redefine it or just ignore it and say, well, in this case, God is wrong. Help us to stop putting ourselves at the center, that you and your word and your purposes and your call in our life, that's the primary thing. God, help us to get that. When we're straight with you, everything else in life is better, seems to work. But when we're out of sorts with you, nothing seems right. So speak to us the truth about you, about your plan, about your ways, about ourselves. God, speak to us the truth. Might we adjust ourselves to it rather than expecting you to adjust to us. Open our eyes now for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated, of course. Open your Bible to the Old Testament book of Lamentations. It's just at the end of Jeremiah. Right after Jeremiah. Right before Ezekiel. Between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Find the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is really part of the preaching of Jeremiah, but it's, it's a really standalone thing. In fact, the whole five chapters is a, it's a song, a psalm, or maybe a poem, all of the above. You see there in the introduction, catch these two statements. First of all, it's an alphabetic psalm. That is to say that each line begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So line 1, all the way to line 22, and then line 23, it would begin all over again. Now this was done so that it would be easy to remember. Parents would teach the book of Lamentations to their children, and they would, I know this sounds bizarre to you, because they didn't have iPods. They would actually memorize stuff. Like we all know the lyrics to songs, not because you sat down to intentionally have to memorize this, but you just heard it over and over and over and over, and by hearing it repetitively, it just became a part of you. And if, if you're singing along or quoting along and you can't remember, you say, wait, wait, where was I? Where was I? And, 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 and that line starts with this, oh, the next, I know where it is now. And to do it alphabetically, was just a device to help you remember. There was another device that was used. It's just the st structure of the song or the poem. 
And I don't know how much you're interested or care about poetry. And I'm not giving this word so you can, you know, at the office or at the lunchroom or where you work and eat tomorrow with people. You're going to say, hey, guess what I learned in church? You know what a chiasm is? Chiasm is simply a word that means this. The poem is arranged in such a way that it's, it's, think about parenthetical brackets. There's an opening bracket and there's a closing bracket and, and all of the meat is in the middle. The explanation is in the middle. And what makes these parenthetical brackets in a chiasm function is that they're, they're like echoing, responding to one another. So there would be A1 at the beginning and A2 at the end and B, B and C and C and depending on how many lines. So here's what's fascinating about the book of Lamentations. Every chapter Every chapter is arranged in a chiasm. That verse one and and the last verse of chapter one are, are if not saying precisely the same thing, they're making the same point. There's a connection. And then the second to the next to the last, and then the third to the third to the last, and the fourth to the fourth. You you get it. You you see the the echo, the arrangement, the A to A, the B to B. You get it. Every verse in chapter one is like that. Every verse in chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 is arranged that way. But it's even better. Chapter 1 is that way to chapter 5. And chapter 2 is that way to chapter 4. And the first half of chapter 3 is that way to the second half of chapter 3. And, and so, <laughs> Jeremiah has arranged his murmuring. These are his laments. He's lamenting this and this and this. And you're going to hear a lot of moaning here today. A lot. In the middle of it, second half of chapter 3, he gets to the point. Now, rather than work you through the book, the way the book is arranged, I want the last thing you hear this morning is hope. So he makes that hope, he makes that point at the apex of the story in the second half of chapter 3. But in chapter 4 and 5, he reverts back to, but it's hard. And I don't want that to be the thought you have lashed in your mind when you go home around 3 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> I, I want you to catch this hope that comes in the second half of chapter 3. So we got to go quickly, quickly to work. We left last week, the last book of the Old Testament of Malachi. Malachi said there is a forerunner who's going to come. That's John the Baptist. And then following John the Baptist, the actual messenger of the covenant will come. And that's Jesus. And that's where we start next month. Spend the month of December. Next Sunday, talking about the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, and how that unfolds. Chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew, chapters 1 and 2 of Luke. We'll spend the whole month in those four chapters. But that's 400 years from now in history. Last week is Malachi. Next week in the Gospels, we've got 400 years. 400 years of silence. There's no new revelation. There's no new preaching. And the prophets and, and, and the people that exist, they're talking about what they've already heard. And what they heard last was the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. We don't know when. Turns out to be 400 years later. So how do they manage? How do they manage that 400 years of no new revelation. No new word from God. How, how did they manage that 400 years with, with clarity and hope? 
I think it's Lamentations chapter 3. So, let's get to that eventually. Chapter 1, look at verse 8 and 9, and all I'm going to do is, I'm going to give you a lot of reading. I'm going to give you a lot of reading. But I'm just skimming. I'm, I'm, I'm really just skimming. Chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Jerusalem has said grievously. That's important that you catch that. Jeremiah says, look, we're in trouble, but we brought this on ourselves. We have said grievously. That's how she became filthy. Those who used to honor us now despise us. They've seen our nakedness, and we ourselves are groaning and hiding our face in shame. Verse 9, her, or our uncleanness was in her skirts. You get that. She's immoral. But Israel has become spiritually immoral, much like Hosea's wife. Remember the story of Hosea? We covered the book of Hosea, the preaching of Hosea. His wife was unfaithful. Well, Israel's been unfaithful. I'm not saying that everyone, every female, every male in the nation was immoral naturally in their human life. But they were spiritually immoral. They began to abandon Jehovah as their God, and they're seeking after other gods. It's spiritual unfaithfulness. It's spiritual adultery. And they do this because they're short-sighted. Second line of verse 9, they took no thought for their future. When you were 13 or 16 or whatever it is these days, and you begin to discover your hormones, you're, you're not thinking about your future. Think about responding to these hormones. And we've all got some scars because we foolishly quickly, unwisely responded to our hormones. We all carry those scars because we weren't thinking about the future. Now, right now, now really horrible song from the 60s and 70s, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Wow. Because we're not thinking about the future. We're having an impulsive response. Well, same thing happened with the nation of Israel spiritually. You see it? Took a little of our future. That's why her fall is terrible. And it appears right now in the moment no one's there to comfort. God is there. You want to see it in a minute. But right now it feels like no, no one no one will see it. This is my question. The enemy is trying. Satan won. God, we're messed up. And I don't know what to do but to say I give up. Now, if you think I'm over-establishing this, I'm reading too much in chapter 5. Now, remember, chapter 1, chapter 5, chapter 2, chapter 4, and I'm arranging it. I'm skipping to chapter 5, and here I'm going to read it with you. Chapter 5, verse 7. Our father sinned, and, and, and they're dead now, and we bear their iniquities. He's not saying we pay, we pay for their sins. I don't pay for someone else's sins. But I am influenced by their sins, and I am lined up repeating them myself. Now I have to pay for my sins until I give them Jesus and he pays for my sins at the cross. But I never have to pay for someone else's sins. I was influenced by my father, but I made decisions to do or not to do what I saw him do. And I've influenced my children negatively. Hopefully there have been some positive things, but no doubt they've picked up some sinful things from me. By God's grace, they've broken some of those bad habits they learned from me. 
those they didn't break, and they repeated themselves, they learned them from me, they pay for their own expression of them. That's the point in verse 7, bearing the iniquities, the things that we've learned, the hopelessness, despair, the, the spiritual adultery. Oh my goodness. Slaves rule over us. We've seen the Babylonians and the Assyrians talk all about that. There's none to deliver us. We are, uh, we get our bread at the peril. We, we gotta sneak out in the dark of night to get something to eat. We're hunted people. We're always at the verge of death. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Catch the poetry. We're burnt up with hunger. Women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah that were vulnerable as a nation. We're slaves down here in Persia. Everyone's exploiting us. Princes are hung up by their hands and no respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind the mill. Boys stagger on the load of wood. Everyone's forced to do manual labor. We're treated as slaves. We are slaves. There's no wise men sitting at the gate to talk about what's good for the city. Those days are over. No young man listening to music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us because we have sinned. And Jeremiah knows that. And the people know that. You didn't blame God. You didn't get mad at God. Why is God letting this happen? Why did God do this? Why us? Why did it touch our family? didn't touch us. Why this? Why this? Sometimes there's a test. Sometimes there's chastisement. I've been tested. And I would say to Carmen, I would, I would think to myself, and I'm walking around the office, and I'm, I'm, I'm walking in circles in the backyard, and I'm thinking, God, why is this happening? Why is this happening? And I'm, I'm, I'm recounting, and I'm, is it this? Is it this? I'm not looking for, no, it can't be that, because I did that perfectly well. I've never done anything perfectly well. But I get this sense, God, is, is this chastisement, or, or is this, you just testing me? And he seems to prompt my logic. Sometimes I, ah. I know what this is. I know what this is. I'm just sneaking around, doing this, doing this, my little secret, or get away with it. Okay, God, you got me. You got me. And other times, God, I've never had a sinless day. But I don't sense this trouble. This this pressure is 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 chastisement. What what's going on here, God? And I just get this sense of, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Okay? Some kind of a test, some kind of a Project God's got me in the middle of. Okay, all right. But this son is perfectly clear. The Archbishop of Israel, the state pastor, is saying, No, we have sinned. And that's why we're slaves in Babylon. We have sinned. Chapter 2, so God's wrath comes. And for those that he loves, it's to correct. To those that are not his, it is to crush. The pressure to correct is, is not, oh, it is painful. It even feels devastating, but it's not fatal. The pressure to correct is not fatal, it's corrective. 
it will give me just enough pleasure to, to knock me back into where safety is. So, I have a dog and I love my dog and I put up a fence for my dog. And I put up this fence for my dog not because I'm afraid some bigger, more nasty animal is going to get my dog. The fence is not to protect her. The fence is to restrain her. Because she don't understand traffic. And she don't listen to my commands. <laughs> so I leave that gate open. She's gone. We've already had to find her three times. Some fences are to keep us in. And some fences are to keep Satan out. So God does have boundaries. That's not because he's cruel and manipulative and he's trying to keep us from having fun. No, he's trying to protect us because a lot of what we call fun is really dangerous to us. Yeah. So he puts these fences and when we climb them, he might even force us back in where it's safe for us. And that's what's happening here in chapter 2. God's wrath is coming on both, some to break, some to crush. And you'll hear it all. A lot of reading. Chapter 2, verse 5. The Lord has become like an enemy, it seems to us. That's how fierce he is. That's how harsh he is with us. It, it, it's like an enemy. Chapter 2, verse 5. He swallowed us up. All the palaces, everything's in, in, in ruins. He's multiplied. He is multiplying in the daughter of Judah. Mourning and lamentation. All we do is cry. All we do is cry. Wow. And then he, visual place by visual place, they're hearing this as they're slaves out of Persia, but they're remembering home back in Jerusalem. And they would get these visual images in, in verse 6. He's laid waste his booth like a garden. And, and, and his ruins, ruins is his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion, which is another Mount Zion where Jerusalem is. Well, there's no festivals. We don't keep the Sabbath anymore. None, none of our feast days and our regular schedule of worship, we've abandoned all of that. And in his fierce indignation, he has spurned both king and priest. Our kings are nothing more than puppets under Nebuchadnezzar. And our priests tell us lies so they can get a better food for themselves from the king. We're in a bad situation here. He moves from that to the altar in verse 7. Verse 8, he is determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out a measuring line. He did not restrain. He did not hold back his hand from destruction. Verse 9, the very city gates of Jerusalem back home have sunk into the ground, ruined and broken the bars, the frame that held the gates in place. Her king and the princes are among the nations and the law is no more. Her prophets find no vision. God is not giving any new revelation. God is not revealing truth to anyone. We're clueless, we're hopeless, we're suffering, we're slaves in Babylon. This is a very bleak spiritual climate. That's chapter 2, here's chapter 4. Verse 6. 
chapter 4, verse 6, for the chastisement, the chastisement, the corrective pressure. Now, I was raised in a time where you could spike a child with a belt, and if you did them in the, hit them in the face, and you didn't use your hand, and you knew the pain level, then no one thought you were abusive. My father never abused me. He never punched me in the chest. He never slapped me in the face. But he had a belt. And my mom was so thrilled to be at the five and dime store. And, and, and I would say, Mom, give me, give me that paddle that's got the, uh, the, the ball and the rubber band. And she was like, oh, yeah, that's a great toy. I'll get you that. Because the rubber band would break by two days. And then she had a paddle. <laughs> So it's funny now. But when your paddle is slavery in Babylon, wow. When the paddle is, God doesn't hate you, but he's just being quiet. You thought you could do better without me? Then go ahead. I'll let you be without me for a while. I'm right here, but you're going to feel like you're without me because you thought it would be better without me. So go ahead. What about the chastisement of God when the paddle is... It seems like God doesn't care. I can remember messing up when I was... And my dad said, I made a mess of son. What are you going to do? I was kind of helping him. He said, no, I didn't make that mess. You want to fix this mess, son. But God, but God, but Dad, but yeah, I know. I'm right here. But but you better find the money. I got the money, but I didn't make this mess, son. You made this mess. What a great life lesson. I didn't understand that then. I kind of didn't like my dad then. Oh, what do I admire him now? So chapter 4, verse 6, the chastisement of the daughter of my people is even greater than the punishment of Solomon. Look at the different words, chastisement and punishment, but the severity wasn't even on the punishment of Solomon. Fire from heaven fell and burned the town down. But to live through chastisement feels harsher than that. Death is an escape. We're not escaping, we're, we're suffering through. You think God's chastisement is not severe? Read this verse, chapter 4, verse 6, first line. The chastisement of God that we recover from seems, feels more harsh than death itself. Because we think death is an escape. Well, it is from the flesh, but there's eternal damnation in the problem. Look at verse 7. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Her bodies were more ruddy than coral, and the beauty of the coral was like a sapphire. We were healthy. Our eyes were bright. Our, our, our skin was firm and, and glowing. We were strong. We were young. We owned the world. But now look at us, verse 8. Our face is blacker than soot. We're not even recognized in the streets. Our skin is shriveled on the bone. 
we become as dry as wood. We're wrinkled and shot and wore out. That's why verse 9 is again true, like we saw in verse 6. Happier are the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger. Skip down to verse 22, chapter 4, verse 22. The punishment of your iniquity, O Lord, O Zion, is accomplished. <laughs> Here's some good news. This will come to an end. I think after after people quit using a belt or whatever else, the grounding became a big thing. Uh, my parents and even one never were big fans of grounding. Unless I meant I'll knock you to the ground. That's not fair, that's my choice. But my dad would take the keys. And that's like, okay, you're stuck at the house now. And what a, what a, okay, you, you have keys now. That's verse 22. You get the keys back. You're not grounded anymore. You can go home. You can move about. You can get back to some semblance of normality. The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. You get to go home? For your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. The first line of 22 is, O daughter of Zion. People of God, the sons and daughters of Abraham, the covenant people of God, those, those that love God and put their faith in God. Oh, your, your, your chastisement is over. For you, you Edomites, Babylonians, you Assyrians, that you, you abused my people, now here's what coming to you, verse 22. He will punish. He will uncover your sin. You will not get away with what you've done. It accomplished my purpose. You will not get away from mishandling my people this way. Chastisement and punishment. Verse 6. And again, verse 22. Chastisement and punishment. Both are painful. One is corrective. One is to crush. God never crushes his people. He will correct us. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. But he will crush those who are the best. Now finally, chapter 3. This is where the whole book occurs. Now, you wouldn't appreciate chapter 3 without the other four chapters around it, but this is the beauty of the book. Chapter 3. This, this is the point. I just want you to hear some moaning. Just so we get a sense of it. In fact, stop here for a second. Uh, let's do two, two minutes. Let's do this. Two minutes. I'm, I'm, I'm being earnest. Very sincere. I want you to think right now in your own life experience. However young, how old, uh, whatever you've been through. Give me the top three and put them all together. Of, of I'm not kidding. Just the most heartbreaking, painful Hopeless, I hope I never come to anything close like that again in my life. Moments or chapters. What have you been through? Are, 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 are you a younger person and your parents got divorced? Have you seen terrible, terrible violence? 
Have you been abused? Physically, sexually, mentally, emotionally? Have you been beaten? What's, what's happened to you? What, what have you been through? Were you divorced? Were, 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 did, did you lose everything? No money. And you began to borrow and couldn't pay it back. And those people you owe now, they've turned them. You actually started to steal. And what, what have you been through? What have you done? What, what's, what's your most shameful? What's your most painful? What's, what's the worst? What's just the worst? The most embarrassing? Or, or maybe it's not something you did wrong, but it was just done to you. What, what's the worst? And, and, and think of two or three. Were, were you widowed? More than once? What, what have you been through? You got a couple pictures in your mind? You have a you have a, some some you resurrect some painful memories? Listen to what Jeremiah is talking about, his memory under the chastisement of God. Listen to what he said. Here, here his his soul just groaning. Hear, hear this. Chapter 3. I am a man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into the darkness without any light. Darkness and no light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole down. God is against me. The preacher feels like that. Have you ever felt like that? God, who are you against me? Or made my flesh and skin waste away. This is all poetic. You get that, right? He's broken my bones. He's besieged and enveloped me. Bitterness and tribulation made me dwell in darkness. He has warned me about. I can't escape. He has made my chains heavy. I call and I cry for help. He shuts out my prayer. We're going through a hard time. Well, more than once when I was a little kid, I remember my mom saying, well, she didn't, she wasn't talking to me and my brother. She, we were at the dining room table, but she said to dad, she said, Si, it just feels like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. I don't seem to get through to God. And that was a great time of testing for all four of us. But it got better again. It did. And it's going to get better here. He says at the end of verse 8, it feels like he's shutting out my prayer. This is the preacher talking. He's walked my way with blocks of stone and made my path crooked. It gets worse, verse 10. He's like a bear lying in wait for me. <laughs> now that you're not hearing my prayer, this is all emotion. What I feel, what I think, what it seems like to me. It, it's not only that you're not, it's not that you're just ignoring me. That's horrible. But you're attacking me like a bear. In verse 10. Like a bear lying in wait for me. A lion in hiding. You turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. You pushed me in this direction. And when I got over here, you ate me up. In poetic language. You made me desolate. Verse 13, speak of bows and arrows. Verse 13, he drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I've become the laughing stone. 
God, we used to be the sons of Abraham. And David was our king. Now, we're a joke. As a Christian, do you feel like that? The United States of America sometimes? But this country which was if not governmentally, although I think it was even governmentally, but especially socially, people who came here, they came here to worship God. Amen. It's not new. And we're just not the second. This is happening all around the globe in every generation. Jeremiah is talking about in his day. We become a laughing stock, verse 14. Verse 15, he uses these words a lot. Bitterness and wormwood. He uses those words a lot. Verse 16, it's like my teeth are chewing on gravel. And I'm covered in ashes. Verse 17 and 18, catch the My soul is bereft. It's a great word. Like I'm floating away and I can't get back to it. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. And you have those moments? No pain, I ask you to dig up. I have forgotten what happiness is. I can't hang on any longer. My endurance is gone. I, I got no fight left. Forget fight. I can't even grasp and hold on to anything. And not only has my endurance perished, second line of verse 18 says, and so has my hope from the Lord. Just shoot me now. I'm not kidding. Even Job didn't get to this place. His wife got there like the first day. Job never gets to this place. Jeremiah is saying, God, I can't hang on anymore. I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm used up. I'm just, I want to die, God. I want to die. I love the Bible because it's real. And it doesn't hide all the foibles and failures and the rebellious sins of our lives. God deals with them thoroughly and effectively. Now here's what's beautiful. Verse 17, 18 seems to me like the low place. Right away, right away, right away. Verse 19. You see what chapter 3, verse 19? Remember my affliction. Remember you're trying not to forget. You're taking drugs. You're drinking alcohol. You're 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 losing yourself in all types of of, of self indulgence. I don't want to think about that. I'm trying to forget that. No, remember the affliction, the wandering, the wormwood, and the gall. My soul continually remembers it. It's bowed down within me. But this, but this, this, this. I call to mind, and therefore I do have hope. Amen. Verse 18, I'm losing hope. I've lost hope. 
in verse 21, but something makes me remember hope. The answer is verse 22. For me, the key verse in the whole book is chapter 3, verse 22. And verse 22 has nothing to say with and I just decided I'm going to pull myself up and I'm just going to pull that same way and not. The solution has nothing to do with Jeremiah. The solution has nothing to do with what Jeremiah is going to do, what Jeremiah did, what Jeremiah decided, what Jeremiah, I'm going to turn over and leave. No, no, this has, this has nothing about self-will, determination, changing attitude, better self-image. This is what I remember in verse 21. This I call to mind. This I call to mind. 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Say that out loud with me. I mean really loud. I'm not kidding. Like crazy loud. Read, read this out loud. Ready? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It never ceases. Uh, Pastor, uh, their ancient ancestors were 400 years slaves in Egypt. I know. But the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The judges were corrupt. The priests were, 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 I'll say anything, just pay me. They're slaves now not in Egypt, but now in Persia. When God sent Moses to the to, to Egypt, he said, you, you tell those people that I heard their prayers and they're not forgotten. 400 years? You tell those people I've heard their prayers, they're not forgotten. Because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. So when you remember your darkest hour, and verse 19 says, don't forget those moments. Remember those dark moments. Not because it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's not wonderful. But remember, so you get this, in the middle of the darkness of your darkness, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Never. It never ceases. Thank you, thank you. It, ne it never ceases. Well, I can't see it. There's 10 million things I can't see. Yeah. Or feel. Yeah. Or even know that, that, that they're, they're close. But I do believe that they never cease. They're there. I may not see it. Can't see it. Haven't seen it for a while. At least the way I measure things. But if I've discovered anything, I've discovered that the Bible is reliable. So if the Bible says it's there, I believe it's there. Yeah. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Yeah. His mercies never, never come to an end. I'm going to sing a song. I was going to say in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> they never cease. They never come to an end. I don't care how black your life has become, how dark, how gloomy, how hopeless, how much despair. I, I don't, it's, I'm not saying that I don't care with compassion. It doesn't matter how deep the hole you then got deeper still. This I know, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were falling through a furnace engulfed in flames and the steadfast love of the Lord caught them and delivered them. It never, never comes to an end. 
Some of his own children, he lets die because it's their time to die. It's not because I quit loving them. Some of us get delivered through the problem. Some of us get delivered out of the problem. But all God's children get delivered. Because God keeps his promises. And when he says, I love you with an everlasting love, that means an everlasting love. He loved me before I knew him. Everlasting is not just from my conversion. I put my faith in Jesus, and from this point forward, no, even before I knew him, before my parents knew him. And this one I believe deeply before Adam and Eve knew him. God has always known his people. And he has always loved his people with an undying, unfailing, steadfast, fixed love. And just because you don't feel it doesn't mean it's not moving in your direction. We measure God's love, or however we measure things. 21st century American context. God doesn't measure his love that way. In fact, here's a big one. Who he loves, he chastens. The more that became clear to me, the more I felt really loved by God at seasons of my life. Verse 23, they are new every morning. It's not the same old thing, same old thing. Okay, here it is again. Here it is again. Here it is again. They are new and fresh every day. New and fresh every day. Oh my goodness. Great is your faithfulness, God. So my soul says, 24, the Lord is my portion. I will fulfill him. My hope is not, we're going to get a good king, and the king's going to make it easier for us. No, my hope is not a new king. My hope is in the Lord. My, my hope is that, that God knows what he's doing, and, and, and he loves me even though I'm in the darkest moment of my life. He loves me. He loves me. So I'm trusting him. I'm, I'm, I'm trusting him. Look what he's brought me through. And I didn't even know he was doing it. And the God who is faithful to me then is faithful to me now and will be faithful. That's not to say I can sin all I want. He's going to take care of me. Well, you can sin all you want. He might slap you around more than you wish. But if you belong to him, he'll never leave you. He'll forsake you. He'll spank you more than you wish. But he'll love you and he will restore you. His heart for his children is always restoration and intimacy with him. Those who are not his... Well, the Bible has a lot to say about them too. And it's not at all what the Bible says about us. It is not at all. So in verse 18, he says, I've lost hope. In verse 21, but now I have hope. And again in verse 24, I will hope in him. Our hope is not in circumstance. Our hope is not in a better job. Our hope is not in a better situation. Our hope is not in a better spouse. Our hope is in Him. Amen. 
focused on him. Not his hand, what he can do for me, but him. I just want to read some more from verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait. Who wait for a good awaiting. I mean, we are, after all, Americans. The Lord is good to those who wait. But then look at the next line. To the soul who seeks. We think waiting is, I'm sitting in my recliner, my arms are folded, I'm watching whatever I'm watching. I'm watching ESPN, arms watching Hallmark. <laughs> We're waiting on the Lord. We're waiting on the Lord. And now you're not waiting on the Lord. You're wasting time. You're wasting time. The second line of verse 25 says, Seek Him. The way we wait is by turn the TV off, listen to some music, read some scripture, talk to someone who knows more about God than I do, but I need to be seeking His face. God, what are you saying to me in this chapter? I'm having a hard time figuring out what's going on. Seek Him. Seek him while you're waiting. Waiting is not passive. He is good to those that wait, to those who seek him. Verse 26, it's a good thing that we should wait quietly. That means without murmuring. Somehow we think we can shame people into acting more quickly if we embarrass them. So in the office, and I, I, I would have made my my uh, my deadline, but you know I, I can't put in my report until I get the information from there. And you think you know them over there, and that that side of the office. And, and by murmuring and complaining, maybe we can motivate them and make me look better, and I can satisfy it. No, it's good that we should wait quietly. We have this strange ability, I call it backdoor boasting. We're, we're, we're bragging about, some people brag about how well they have. Some of us brag about how bad they have. I should be happy too if, but here I am, you know, don't have this, don't have this, lost this, lost this, don't have that, and that's, but I'm trusting the Lord. Yeah, you really sound like you're trusting the Lord, dear sister. You really. You really sound like uh, you're walking with Jesus. That we should wait without murmuring, without. Watch yourself, people, so they'll pray. I don't need 10 million details on how hard your life is. You can tell me, look, Pastor, I'm, I'm confused. I'm feeling in a dark place. And I'll say, do you need to tell me any details? And you may say yes or no, okay. And and but the point is, I I can't fix your problem. God can fix your problem. Amen. So I'm not saying don't tell me. Tell me you're in a bad spot. Tell me you're in darkness. Tell me you're in confusion. Tell me you're in sin, and and, and you I need to confess. Tell me what you need to tell me in general principle, but you need to be talking. Only he can take away your guilt. Only he can change your circumstances. Only he can give you peace. I'm not saying don't come talk to me. Now, please don't hear me say it. I'm not saying that. But whatever you tell me, I'm just going to talk to God anyhow. Why don't we both together talk to God? 
It's a good thing that we wait quietly, without murmuring and hope. It's good for a young man to bear the guilt in his youth. We've harmed our adolescents by not letting them carry more pressure at 16, 18, and 20. We've done everything for them when they turn 25 and they expect the rest of will do everything for them. Well, I'm not going to do that for you. It'll crush you. You better figure that out when you're 14 or 12. 16. Get some stability in your spiritual, emotional legs. Okay, alright. This is what adult life is about. This is being responsible. This is what it is to be a Christian adult. To turn the other cheek. To not cry when you don't get your way. It's good for young people to bear the yoke of responsibility and the burden of duty to learn that young. It's good. So all you kids in the youth group, don't don't come to your advice like, my parents, my parents. Because your pastor's saying, yeah, give them more. Give them more. It's good. 28, let him sit among his bones when the yoke is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. It's the last line of 29. There may yet be hope. What he's talking about is the hope of they're going to grow out of their immaturity. They're going to grow out of their self-indulgence. They're going to grow out of the sense that it's all about me. Well, when we get out of step of God, it's usually because we've been making it all about me. God, how come you want this? How come you do this? And God said, that's the problem. I don't want you doing this. You're like, you're happy doing that. I didn't make you do that. I made you do this. You're going to be your happiness. I don't want to do that. Because you don't know yourself as much as I know you. I made you. I wired you. You're not going to be a good fit doing that. And we fight with God. And he's okay. Go ahead. Knock yourself out. And I pursued a couple things that weren't God's plan. And oh my goodness, I still carry the scars of that stupid decision. And here I am now, doing what God wanted me to do all along, which was the dead last job on the face of the earth. I wanted anything to do with And could not be happier. Because God knows what he's doing. Oh, Pastor, I, I'm, I'm not going to reconcile my spouse. Well, you better settle up for a long fight with God. Because God is all about showing through Christians' lives that we can love the unlovable. And right now, you think your ex-spouse is unlovable. God says, yeah, that's a perfect situation for me to show my power. Last time, 29. There may yet be Hope was a big theme in the second half of chapter 4. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. Turn to the other cheek. Verse 31. The Lord will not cast off forever. There will be a payday. Everything's going to come around. This will work out. You better fight the good faith to hang on until it does. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion. According to the abundance of his steadfast love, 
according to the abundance of his steadfast love, we will have compassion proportionate to this unbelievable love that he has for us. You gotta hear this verse. I, I gotta go. I, I, I got lots more to read. You can read it on your notes. He does not afflict from his heart. He does not afflict from his heart. My dad's heart was to love me. I can remember multiple times he's taking the belt out of the loop around his wrist and he's literally looping. And he says, son, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And I'm thinking, that's the biggest lie I've ever <laughs> And then I became a parent. God does not grieve us. And he does grieve us, but he does not grieve us from his heart. His heart is to build us up. His heart is to help us to mature. His heart is to toughen us up to the cruelties of this world. His heart is to bring us to fullness as compassionate, strong, Christian men and women. That's his heart. And he'll employ some methods that you wish he did not. But if I know anything about the parenting of God, that he is the perfect parent. He is the perfect parent. And the lessons I learned from his sternness, I know now I could have not have learned any other way. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And for 400 years, the slaves in Egypt held on to it. And now at the end of the Old Testament, for the next 400 years, these who've just been released from slavery, and they went back to Jerusalem, and they got their houses back, and they even built a new temple. The houses weren't as nice as before. The temple was smaller than Solomon's temple. And they're still living with the shame. We were slaves once, and we're no longer the world power. And they're clinging to this hope. To Malachi's day. Malachi said, someone's coming. Someone's coming. And for 400 years, just like their ancient ancestors in Moses' day, again, for 400 years, they're clinging to this promise. Malachi said, someone is coming. Is your life hard? Here's what I'm holding on to. Jesus said, I am coming again. I am coming again. Therefore, we have hope. There's hope for your marriage. There's hope for your parenting. There's hope for your bad relationships in every aspect of life. There's no area in your life where you can't have some hope. No matter how bleak, dark, slow, low you feel, God seems distant, far away. All that we've read from, from Jeremiah. He gets to the place that he has hope. You know why? Verse 22. Because God never stops loving us. Even when it looks like he doesn't, even when you can't feel it, he's there loving us, being wise in the way he pours out that love. The steadfast love of the Lord never comes to an end. That's right. That's right. On that truth and that truth alone, the Christian stands. On that truth and that truth alone, the Christian says, Okay, shut up, Dave. They preach to themselves. And they encourage people around them. Come on, get up, get out of bed. Get dressed. Wash your face. 
find something for which to give thanks. Because God's doing his work in us. And right now you don't understand it, you may not like it, but it's going to get better. It might get worse before it gets better, but this will get better. Because the steadfast love of the Lord. Never. Never. See. And that's the song we sing today. Stand.